The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm George Scipione, uh, again, the director of the Biblical Counseling Institute at the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, was here, uh, ran IBCD years ago. I'm glad to be back. Um, Pittsburgh, as it's called, uh, perfect description of where I live now. It's a drinking town with a sports problem. <laughs> it worships uh, the Stillers, and now the Pens have won the Stanley Cup. So uh, the town is confirmed in its paganism. So, uh, But uh, we keep preaching the gospel, and uh, hopefully God will turn the city upside down. Our topic this morning uh, is male leadership in a genderless world. Um, In any subject, I think it really behooves us to do what Jesus did. It's interesting. Any controversy about male, female, about marriage, remember Jesus goes back to the beginning. That's, That's very important because Jesus Christ is God. And let's, let's talk to him before we start. Father in heaven, uh, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, you the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are uh, uh, in awe of you. We're not like you. We're, we're single beings. We can't be tripersonal. And, and yet, Lord, we're made in your image, and we thank you that the work of Christ brings us to you, and we can begin to be more like you. Help us, Lord, not just to think things through, but... Lord, to be transformed so that we can be uh, the kind of men and women we ought to be in the world today. Uh, We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus says, back to the beginning, which means Jesus not only takes it seriously, he takes it as time and space history. Now, again, I don't know the circles you move in, Uh, Hopefully you don't move in the circles that I do where people are questioning Genesis. This happened back in the 1800s, 17, 1800s. The liberals began to say, well, the first 10 chapters of Genesis are not real time and space history. They're kind of myth. You know, and there's a lot of people who've been in Bible-believing circles that are kind of getting stuck in that again. And uh, without going in all the rabbit trails in terms of, well, how do you justify the... uh, genderless world we live in and you can have sexual desires for anything or anyone Um, that all comes from a a lack of really believing the paradigm's real that there was a real Adam a real Eve in a real garden okay and uh, one of the first things I want to ask is what are you talking to a snake for anyway I can't, is this the Chronicles of Narnia or what? I don't know. You know, people are funny. We're not only sinners. You know, you think of Balaam, right? That guy had to really be angry. I mean, he's talking to a donkey, right? He's having this running argument with a donkey. It never, never dawns on him. Hey, this donkey's never talked to me before, right? 
so the question is, uh, why are they talking to a snake, especially a snake that's bad-mouthing God? But the, if, if we were there, we would have really seen it. Might not have understood it because they're probably speaking Hebrew or some ancient Semitic language, but the bottom line is it was a real garden. And that's where Jesus goes back to. So when we come to this whole issue of uh, gender identity, which I'll deal with this afternoon in a a seminar or like last night, uh, we have to go back to the paradigm and take it seriously. Because before the fall, again, praise God, we're going to go beyond the fall, right? Uh, Even pre-fall. Because Adam and Eve, even though they were perfect, they had the possibility of sinning. Praise God, one day in the new heavens and where there's not going to be any possibility of sinning anymore. I mean, that, that, that blows my mind. I can't even imagine that. But, but there'll be a time when we won't be able to sin. But we need to go back and see at the beginning, there was Adam and there was Eve. Okay, So what's the pre-fall order? Now, the world can say that didn't exist. I don't care about it. But you and I don't have that prerogative as God's children. And our culture needs that today. So, what is God's design in the beginning? What would it, it's a little speculative, what would have happened if the fall didn't occur? But there was a time, and we need to grasp onto that, that there really was a created order. Um, How's Christ going to redeem the world. Things are going to be different. My wife and I, we sometimes think about that. What's it going to be like not to be married? Yeah, It's hard to even remember being single 44 and 45 years ago, you know. But uh, in heaven, we're not going to be married. You know, we're going to be the bride of Christ. That's going to be sufficient. So we need to think through the implications of all this, okay? So let's look at some passages. That's very well known. I'll read it again. But uh, Jesus, in his controversies, remember the last week of his life, he's duking it out theologically with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Herodians. He's he's there to die, but he's also straightening out people's misconceptions. So, So how do we frame our life? What's the most important thing for us to grasp today? Well, in Matthew 22... Uh, Jesus is uh, preparing to die. He's in the last week of his ministry. And remember, the Sadducees come, and they're the liberals. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in resurrection. And they ask him, well, you know, there's this uh, woman, and she marries the guy, you know, the, Le- the Leverett Wright, you know, goes through seven brothers. Whose wife is she going to be? And only Jesus comes, you, you dummies, you come here to try to trap me, trap me. We're not going to... There's not going to be marriage in heaven. Now, you know, I tell people uh, there's only two possibilities, free sex, you know, like the angels. You know, they're not given in marriage. So either the angels just have sex with anyone, which, of course, they don't, or there isn't that in heaven. Okay? So you Sadducees don't understand it. Then the Pharisees come, and they go, well, he got those liberals, poked them in the eye, okay? Now, you know, we're going to test them. And this is real familiar, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer. Right? Debbie's not here to defend herself. Debbie Dewar. 
so I won't make any lawyer jokes, okay? But it's a lawyer, okay? What do you expect? He asks him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so, really, everything that we do depends on these foundational principles. And going back to the beginning. So let's go back to Genesis. Open your Bibles to Genesis 1 through 3. This is just going to be a review. Um, you know, I had a pastor once say, you know, you don't go home and say, gee, hon, I'm sick of meat and potatoes. Why don't we have some rocks for dinner? He says, I'm just going to give you the word. It's the same old word, you know, but you don't get tired of it. Well, we know Genesis 1 through 3, okay? So, in the beginning, and we're trying to focus on this whole dance of male and female, okay? And, and how do we be men? So I'm not ignoring the ladies, but how to be men in a world that basically says it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whatever you decide that you want to be, you are. In that kind of world where, where really it's kind of... Uh, you know, craziness personified. What do we do? You go back to the beginning, and what do we read? Chapter 1. God makes male and female, the human race, and what? In his image. Man is unique. Yes, there's similarities, but we marry, we don't mate. There may be some similarities between us and other mammals, but we're not mammals. We're men and women made in the image of God. And that uniqueness is so significant, we really have lost that today. People are just globs. Or we're really gods. We can determine our own fate. We can make the world. You can be anything you want. As long as you have money and you have uh, issues, you can become a man or woman or whatever if you have that. So he designated in such a manner, okay? So God differentiates human beings from the animals. You know the whole scene. Giraffe's too tall. Elephant's too big. None of these fit. Not just because they can't reproduce, but because they're not the image bearer of God. And so he puts them to sleep, first operation. Adam wakes up. Wow. That's it. I know one when I see one. And, and that's, that's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. See? And, uh, you know... Matthew Henry said, you know, it's from the rib, not from the feet, so he'd be standing over or from the head. You know, uh, can make those metaphors. But the reality is that man and woman are made in the image of God. And so we get to chapter 2, 
which is really just a, a repackaging of the creation of man. It's not a different account. You know, some people try to make it that way. It really is just reflecting on the manhood and womanhood and what? It's a unique dance. And again, not trying to be snarky or anything, but it's not Adam. It's Adam and Eve, right? It's not Adam and Steve. It's not Adam and a bunch of women. So if you take the paradigm seriously, it's not optional. As far as God is concerned, man and woman. That's the way it is. And we can't give that up. And any Christian institution that messes with that kind of stuff, yeah, sure, there's literary uh, parallels here and structure and all of that stuff, but since when does poetry have to be non-history? You know, the charge of the light brigade, you know, it's a poetic rendition of a real historical battle. So the reality is, even though there's historical, you know, there's structure there, you know, day one, day four, you know, people argue about this. Look, this is real time and space history. And Jesus says, in the beginning, <clears throat> we didn't have this mosaic stuff that Moses allowed you, you know, for the divorce, that whole argument. So again, I know you know this, but we have to hammer this away. Man and woman are created in a unique way as image bearers of God. And I would say this. Marriage reflects the Godhead in a way that individuals don't. hope you don't think that's heretical, but think that through. In other words, each individual is an image bearer of God. That's why abortion is so bad. Because what you're doing is spitting and destroying an image of God, and it really is a satanic attack on God indirectly through trying to kill a child because I want to obliterate the image of God. Now, if he can obliterate marriage, okay, what's he obliterating? Christ and the church. Think, think about this. This is, this is mind-boggling. Back in eternity, before there was anything, before there was a fall, God ordained that male-female relationship would reflect his redemptive work. Old Testament, Israel, and Jehovah, New Testament, Christ, and the church. And so there's a lot at stake in the male and female relationship. And back when this became an issue in the church, uh, it started off something that's now this whole gender confusion. See? It goes like this. Uh, If you've studied different things... Well, uh, you see, the Bible is ancient literature. It really doesn't understand modern people. So the Bible condemns things like drunkenness. But see, drunkenness in the Bible isn't the same thing as alcoholism. Because they didn't have science... to study humans and figure out that there is a genetic predisposition toward alcoholism. Now, as I said last night, you know, 1 Corinthians 6 says, such were some of you, right? 
so your genetic structure doesn't change after conversion. And yet, past tense. Okay? So, so that's the argument. See, we didn't know about alcoholism, and so that's a, a horse of a different feather than drunkenness. Okay. <clears throat> homosexuality. Well, the Bible condemns homosexuality, but that's different than same-sex genetic attraction. See, see that's the argumentation. <clears throat> and uh, uh, that's, you, you name it, you can put in the particular sin or the particular issue, and that's the whole argument. <clears throat> They didn't know about these things. Now think about that. This is the triune living God that created the world, holds it all together, gives us the word, and he doesn't understand this stuff. Talk about hubris. Talk about hubris. Now, this is an aside. i got to be careful, not rabbit trailing all over the place, but uh, science. I always tell this in my basic uh, counseling course. Science. It's a wonderful thing. I love science. I have cataracts. I'm 70, so you'd expect I'd... But I had it in the 40s because I took steroids. Obviously not anabolic steroids that build bodies, but the anti-inflammatory for asthma, which triggered off, and so I'm glad that I have lens implants. Um, Probably be dead by now if it wasn't for modern science. However, however... I could have been godly, hopefully, if I was blind. And if I die, I certainly will be more godly than I am now. So I'm grateful. But science told me 35, 40 years ago, don't eat butter. Don't eat butter. It'll clog your arteries, and you'll have a heart attack. Eat margarine. Anybody remember that? Some of you old enough to remember Now, what are they telling me today? Don't eat margarine. It's got triglycerides. You know, it'll kill you. Eat butter. Okay, now I'm serious. That's science. Why? Because science is always cumulative and tentative. Only God knows absolute truth, absolutely. And so we're always plugging along. And any any honest... uh, person who's scientific will tell you that. We have a relative who had to go see a psychiatrist and his name here in San Diego is Funkenstein. He said to my wife, what else? What else? With a name like Funkenstein, I had to become a psychiatrist. <laughs> and uh, the question was, why do these drugs work if they work? And he goes, we don't know. We're just doing the best we can, doing what we can, he says the, the reality is it's serendipity. You know, you develop the drug for one thing and it seems to work over here. We use it. He said, we're doing just the best we can. You know, we don't know all that much. I mean, that's, a, that's a, uh, an honest man. Okay? That's, that's science, okay? So, so back to the beginning. <clears throat> Male and female. And it's very interesting. I think if you go through the account, and we'll take time to do it, go through the account carefully. Go through the account carefully, and you'll see when God curses Satan and Eve and Adam, 
It's according to their roles. Notice that. It's kind of interesting. <clears throat> when God comes, and now God didn't go brain dead. He knows everything. So he's asking a rhetorical question. Adam, where are you? And God didn't lose him. Okay? He said, well, you're hiding. Why'd you hide? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to? God already knew that. But he's asking him. And what does Adam, he asks Adam, why do you ask Adam? Because <clears throat> Adam was the leader. He's the covenant head. If you read carefully Romans 5, it was Adam's sin, not Eve's. It was Adam's sin that threw the whole human race into the mess that we're in now. Because he was the covenant head. And God said to him, because you what? Listened to your wife. Now that doesn't mean, man, don't listen to your wife. (laughs) Because you listened to her, Instead of leading her, that's where you are. And so the ground is cursed because of him. The wife, she's cursed. Childbearing. And, very interestingly, the text says there, you will have a desire for your husband and he will rule over you. The feminists will say male headship is part of the fall. And that's the way they'll argue. And, and Eve actually becomes the heroine because she had the gall to stand up to Jehovah God, the bad, patriarchal, nasty God of the Old Testament. Thank God we get to the New Testament in Jesus, sweet Jesus. Of course, he got messed up too by Paul the Pharisee who's the woman-hating gay-bashing Pharisee. That's the way the line goes in evangelical feminism. They rebel, they fall, and they're cursed in unique ways. I'm belaboring this because I want you to see that men have to be men. If you want to add to that, study the whole Bible. Be an honest, an honest attempt. I've got marriage and family notes for my marriage and family course. If you uh, send me an email, I can send them to you. But I go through all this uh, in the Old Testament. Male headship is not an option. Male kings, male prophets, a few female prophets. That's unusual. Male judges. Deborah knows she's an exception. Hey, if I, Barry, if I go out with you, you know the honor's not going to go to you. It's going to go to a woman. Look, I just want to come back alive. You know, so, so go out with me, right? And Jael gets it. She nails it, literally. You know, nails Sisera to the ground. Okay, and uh, uh, so all through the Old Testament, you have what? Male leadership, male priests, male kings mostly male prophets. You get to the New Testament. Does it change? Now, again, this is speculative. And I mean this. Uh, if you know, Jesus is not a coward, and uh, the, the argument goes this way. Well, he didn't want to rock the boat. There was a cultural thing. Women were put down. And he didn't want, Are you kidding me? He's ready to die over the Sabbath issue, right? 
Name something where Jesus backs off of a, of a controversy. He doesn't. So if, if really the gospel, and this is the way people will argue, when the gospel came, since male headship is a result of the fall, the redemption in Christ reverses that. It takes away that. Well, my response is, if that really is the case, then why didn't he have female apostles? He could have, right? Affirmative action. Okay? All these centuries of male, you know, badness, then, okay, we'll have 50% women apostles or perhaps, you know, 90% to make up for those centuries. So the reality is, uh, the honest read of the Bible is you can't get away from male headship. And, and, the, and the Genesis passage where it says, your desire. Now think about this. That's a rare Hebrew verb. It only happens in three places in the Old Testament. God's punishment to the woman. You know, your desire will be for your husband. Okay? Now, we're doing Song of Solomon. It's really interesting. You can ask uh, Ian if my Hebrew exegesis is correct. Okay? That verb is used in the Song of Solomon. My, my desire is for my beloved... Okay? So it has a sexual tone. So the feminists will say, well, that's really what the curse was. You're going to have a sexual desire for your husband, and he's going to use that to put you down and rule over you. Well, the same verb in Hebrew, same tense, Genesis 4, where the Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door... And its desire is to consume you. Same as chapter 4. Now I ask you, Moses writing Genesis or Solomon writing millennia later, which one do you think is, is the proper interpretation? Okay, yeah, You don't need to have a PhD in Hebrew exegesis to figure out that you know, that's what it means there. So the woman's desire is really in a sense to consume her husband and he's going to push back so that's the, the I don't know if you're going to get this there may be someone will walk into your you know, study and talk with you and talk like this and say well so and so you know uh, it's the same stuff that you have to go through as you do with homosexuality because you get, you get uh, supposedly gay Christians going through well you know uh, uh, boy Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't homosexuality that's, you got it wrong it was rape See, that's what it was destroyed. No, seriously, and you go through that. Uh, and it's, and, well, it's not homosexual, you know, that's genetic. It's the, it's the rest of you that are really uh, heterosexual, you know, and that's sin. If you're heterosexual and you have homosexual again, that's sin. But if you're genetically predisposed to that, it's okay. So now I... It sounds ridiculous, but, but brothers and sisters, these are the arguments that you're going to hear. And, and see the connection. Why is it that most evangelical feminists come on board for homosexuality? It's hermeneutics. It's the interpretation of Scripture. If I can look at the Bible and I can rid male headship and get rid of that and explain it away then I can look at homosexuality and explain it away. And in fact, I can explain anything away. 
And what you have really is a cultic response. I'm not trying to be mean to people, but, you know, JWs, you know, they use the Bible and they give you proof text. But it's to prove that which is not theologically correct. So the Old Testament summarizes the New Testament male headship in the family and the church. Don't ask me. I'm not going to go there today. I'm not going to talk about politics. But I'll just let you think the logical thing, okay? Family, that's the first institution that God founded, right? Didn't start with the church, didn't start with the state. They all grew out of the family. So God starts, male headship, and the wife, you know, is, he's the five-star general, she's the four-star general, the kids are privates. Yeah, they're, they're enlisted, okay? So male headship in the family and male headship in the church. Now, all of this is how do we start to lead people when they don't believe that we have a right to lead? So that's the practical issue. How in the world can... Well, uh, pretty simply, be like Jesus. I know that's oversimplistic, but you have to be a leader like Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, now, Paul, well, let me just quickly just reinforce this. I know you've read it, but let's read 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, because there's Paul's reasoning. And, and I want you to see, if nothing else, I'm, I'll try to make this practical and bring it down to counseling issues, but theologically it's very significant because if you deny male headship, you will soon give up creation, fall, and redemption. Paul, in arguing with the church at Corinth in chapter 11, verse 2, says this, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is what? Christ. The head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there is a chain of command. The man, Christ, the Father. That's the, that's the created order. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a Uh, If a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head. Let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. doesn't mention she's the image of God. woman is not uh, less than a man in that regard, but... She is the glory of the man. She's his crown. For man was, now here's the argument. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women are, is not independent. Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves, etc. 
So Paul's argument is, look, that historic incident was real. God made Adam first, then he made Eve, and he made her form. Uh, over to First Timothy. Again, I'm sure most of you, some of you are pastors, you've preached on this and gone through this. But uh, in chapter 2 of First Timothy, I desire then, verse 8, I desire then in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearl or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness, that is to say, good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was utterly, it's an intensified uh, verb in the Greek, uh, utterly deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. Difficult exegesis on that passage. What's he talking about? Singular to plural. Uh, most think it's she will be saved through the childbearing of Mary, who brings the Messiah, if they are, are believers. My own personal opinion is she's saved through the curse of childbirth, okay, if she's a believer. Okay, but in any case, for our purpose, Adam was formed first and Eve. Adam was not deceived, she was. Those are historical arguments that Paul makes. So all this is to say, most of you are convinced of this. Uh, What does this mean? Well, uh, you need to understand and embrace God and his created order. You need to embrace God and his created order. People will argue with me and I go, I'm sorry, it's not my book. I didn't write that. I mean, if you really have a complaint about what the Bible says, it's, it's between you and God, not me. You know, I didn't write the book. But I have to hold to what God teaches. And so, again, let's make this practical. What do you need to do? You need to teach men to be men. Now, why is there a feminist movement, a modern feminist movement? I think it's because men are a bunch of wimps. They'd rather sit in the corner, just be blunt, they'd rather sit in the corner and masturbate and look at pornography and act like little kids than man up, you know, and go fight and die. So what happens? You always know this. There is an authority structure in the world, and if men don't do their job, somebody's going to want to fulfill it, women or children. And, And consequently, it's very interesting, if you look at Isaiah, one of those early curses in the book of Isaiah is, Because my people didn't love me and and keep my word, I'm going to let what? Women and children rule over them. So this modern uh, American love of youth is real love of folly. It's like reversing the book of Proverbs. We exalt youth. What? 
we exalt youth. How dumb is that? Yeah. Uh, the military normally doesn't do that. They don't usually let privates lead, you know, the whole army. You know, seamen, you know, seamen recruits. They don't. Why? Because you need some seasoning. And so our, our culture is a culture of death because we don't want to have... Because why? If I admit that there's somebody who has authority over me, then I'm going to have to admit that there's a God that has authority. Okay? And Peter Jones, you can see the ministry downstairs, you know, that's uh, advertised uh, Truth Exchange. I mean, it really is Eastern mysticism that wants to destroy male-female uh, sexual differences. Why? Because then we'll all become Hindus. You ever seen any Hindu temples? I have. You know, what do they have? Perverse sexuality, bestiality, and all, every kind of perversion that you can think of right up there built in the temple. And you wonder why in Hindu culture often there was a lot of temple prostitution with kids, etc. Because the God that you serve, you know, that dictates who you're going to become. Right? I mentioned that this afternoon. Psalm 115. The idols of the world, what? Can't see, can't hear, can't speak, can't walk, can't answer prayer. And then what, how's the psalm end? Well, that section. They that make them become like them. That's the ironic reversal. Here, where does an idol come from? Some guy, you know, thinks this up, you know, makes the thing, and then all of a sudden, why? You end up as dumber than your dumb idol. I mean, it's a classic Isaiah thing, right? Don't they get it? Uh, if you can't preach Isaiah, don't preach. <laughs> it preaches itself, right? Cut a tree down. Timber! What do you do? You uh, carve half of it into an idol, the other half you cook your supper over, and then you go... My father, you made me. You know what I mean? Isaiah is, duh. <laughs> Don't you get it? <laughs> but when you make an idol, yeah, and so why do we have really, uh, it's very intriguing, why do we have female chauvinist pigs? Because they wanted in on the action and they become like male chauvinist pigs. And this always happens. Bloodless revolutions don't work. What do I mean by that? Well, who was worse, the czars or the Bolsheviks? Pretty hard to choose. Who was worse, the slave traders, you know, or or the black nationalists who were killing honky, you know, back in the seventies? Pretty hard to choose between the two of them. Okay, and and to choose between a woman who wants to be a man. You see, this whole thing is really satanic because Satan doesn't want you to get the idea or me or our counselees that there is a real God and you're not him. And you're going to have to answer to him. You live in a, an authority-bound universe because that reflects his what? Think about it. The Trinity, doesn't it? That's intriguing. In fact, that's a big theological argument between evangelical feminists and Orthodox 
Because they say, you guys have subordinationism. You know, you're really making Jesus less than the Father and the Holy Spirit. And that, that, that's their argument. You know, and we say, no. Uh, Orthodox theologians for millennia have argued what? There is an ontological and economic trinity. Big technical terms, what? God in and of himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal with God. Full of glory and power and dignity. One isn't more God than the other. However, for creation and redemption, what do they do? The Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to them. And if you don't keep those fine distinctions, you begin to what? Now, see this? You've tweaked redemption, and now you tweak the very nature of God. And if you change the nature of God, you lose salvation. So that's the theology behind it. Now, how do we teach this? Well, you know, it's a little simpler in the sense that you've got books like uh, Martha Peace's book, you know, An Excellent Wife. So you've got resources there to help a woman to be a woman. But for men, you've got Stuart Scott's, you know, The Exemplary Husband. You've got Lou Priolo's The Complete Husband. You've got materials out there that that you can help. And so um, more and more... Uh, we're getting men coming in going like this. Well, you know, uh, my wife's a doctor and I'm a day laborer. So she can make a lot more cash than I can. So why don't I stay home with the kids and she go to work? I don't know if you get this SoCal. It's, uh, back in the East Coast, there's a lot of this. There's a lot of guys that want to be Mr. Mom. Okay, and guess what? can't run a church that way with a bunch of Mr. Moms. Uh, I have a man, I can't give you enough details, uh, be careful on this one, I talked to him briefly. His wife is the head, if I mentioned the company, you would know the company. It's that well known. She is the head Hancini for human resources for that whole company. And it's an international company incredible. They made a decision. He would homeschool the kids. She would work because he could make a lot more money. And he told me, we both regret the decision. It has begun to, to really distort and they struggle in that relationship because the bottom line is if you're HR for thousands of people across the world and making these big decisions and bringing money, it's pretty hard to come home to dad and what? Submit to dad. So there's practical consequences that can come up in actual actual cases where, where guys and more and more, I don't know if you run into this, men, guys that don't want to be men. They don't want to work. They don't want to lead. And look at the chain. If that ruins the home, um, then what happens to your church? Right? Because the home is the minor league for the church. Right? If a man can't take care of his own household, that whole phenomenon, as Paul talks about it. So so, uh, teaching men to take leadership when leadership is a dirty word. Okay? 
and now we got women in combat. You know, we, we want to obliterate all these differences. The Israelis found out that that didn't work. And Israel's not exactly a Christian nation. I mean, I mean the Jews and Arabs do agree on one thing. Christ isn't God. So that's interesting for all the Palestinians and Israelis who hate each other. They can agree on one thing. Christ isn't God. We have to teach men to be men. Have this mind in you. What? That was in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, did not think, cling on to that, but he humbled himself. So, uh, again, you, you have to do this individually in your counseling, sitting down. And what does this mean? Well, go through the, the two great passages, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter. You're supposed to be Christ to your wife and to your kids. Which means you've got to teach guys the most important thing is to pray for your family and to lead them in worship. Not just put bread on the table. Now, you can't have family worship, pray with them, and not work. But, you know, priority-wise, okay, your job is to what? Your job is to have your wife more like Jesus Christ than when she first married you, not because you're persecuting her. Teach guys all that at the time. This is not how to pray for your wife. Oh, Lord, thou knowest that she is a tough nut. And I wouldst, oh Lord, if thou would crack her, it would really make the home a better place. That is not praying for your wife, that's praying against her. Here's the prayer. Lord, I know she's rebellious at times, but me. Smack me, not her. That's Moses, that's Paul, that's Jesus. So you have to teach a guy, okay, is to step up and go, I'm going to be the sin bearer. Okay, we can't atone the way Christ could. But, but when people sin, think about it. Someone always bears the cost. Someone always bears the cost. If you sin against me and I say, hey, it's okay, I'm not going to... See, I'm bearing the cost. You smack into my car, I don't make you pay. I still have to pay for the car. And, and so we have to teach men... Lord, if you, don't go up, if you don't go up to the Holy Land with us, we're not going. Because we're not worth squat. And we're not, right? What's the difference between the Jews and the Egyptians? What's the difference? The lamb. It's the blood on the doorpost. That's the only difference between the Jews and the Egyptians. I always laugh when people say, oh, Jew. What's a Jew anyway? Rahab, Ruth. It's never a pure ethnic Jew, okay? It's, it's not ethnicity. It's spirituality, okay? The blood, that's the only difference. And you've got to teach a guy that's your main responsibility is to stand between God's wrath and Christ and, and, and your family to lead them to Christ. And then you've got to teach them to sit down and set up reasonable discipline 
with the kids, etc., etc. All the things that you know about this. Philippians 2, have this mind that was in you in Christ Jesus, okay? Now, the second one that you need to teach, a uh, passage that's on for you, is 1 Peter 2. This, is, this has become such an important passage for all counseling, but particularly here. First okay. Peter 2. Okay. Divine irony. Who wrote Peter? Peter. Peter, very good. You didn't even go to seminary to learn that, did you? Okay. It says right there in the Bible, Peter. Okay. Liberals have to come up with goofy ideas. Okay. But Peter wrote the book of Peter. Now, why is that significant? Why? Why is it significant that Peter wrote the book on First Peter? Okay, someone quick, help them. What's the theme of First Peter? Suffering and what? Suffering and coming out smelling like Jesus, if I can put it that way. Okay, so why is it why is it encouraging that Peter gets to write that book? Because what's he doing in the garden? Lopping off ears, and Jesus has to put him back on. Stop it, Peter. Okay, so just the fact that Peter writes the book to to handle persecution divine grace and irony okay so in the midst of it he says in chapter 2 okay slaves be submissive to your masters not just to those that are reasonable but also to those that are what perverse because that's what makes God happy why because God likes to see you suffer no because you're being like Christ he what he left us an example now he's our mediator and the liberals forget that no mediator no salvation. But I think a lot of Bible believers forget he's not just our mediator, he's our what? Our model. We're supposed to become like him. We can't do it without his spirit and his blood, but we've got to become like him. So how do we become like him? When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't curse back, but he what? That's key. That's such an important passage in counseling. That's a seminar for another time, but take that away. Why? It wasn't his divine. I always thought of this. I think he always went into hyperspace, kind of like, you know, Star Wars, right? You know, he's divine, okay? He's the God-man, but it says clearly he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's how Jesus made it through the persecution. God, you're going to take care of it. You know, I don't mean it's sarcastic. 70 AD is coming. (laughs) You know, you'll take care of the judgment. It's, It's... That's the parallel for chapter 3, which is wives in the same way, what? Be submissive to your husbands, even if they disobey, etc., etc., and don't give in to fear. Okay? So that's helpful for women. For the men, it's very interesting. The next verse is, likewise, husbands, live with your wives according to? knowledge or understanding and treat her as the weaker weaker vessel. I'm not sure that's the best translation. I think it's more the fragile vessel. We think of weakness. It's more fragile. She's Ming Dynasty China, not Tupperware. Treat your wife like China, not Tupperware. It's interesting. I was was just in Brazil and I told them that. They all cracked up at me. Uh, I was there a couple of years ago, and that's my favorite illustration for guys. Don't treat your wife like Tupperware. Treat her like China. And I'm thinking, now in Brazil, maybe they don't know Tupperware, right? So I go to the airport to fly back to the States. And this is, I am not exaggerating, there are 3,000 women who are Tupperware salesmen. (laughs) 
I can't even get into the airport. There's so many buses with Tupperware women. You know, and I'm laughing because I said, well, I didn't want to use the, the illustration because I thought they might not know what Tupperware was in Brazil. Well, they know what Tupperware is, that's for sure. And I saw it in 3,000 plus. That's what you have to teach a man. Okay? Understanding. Your wife isn't a man. Not just because of plumbing, thinks differently, responds differently, okay? And guess what? Your wife's not my wife. So there's differences between women and men, and there's difference between women. You know? You have to learn some of these things. I had to learn real quick. Don't tell jokes to my wife while we're arguing. My dad, I'm serious, my dad, he was a jokester, right? And we said, Dad will die telling jokes, and he did. He went into the hospital telling jokes, and, and, you know, he was a wonderful guy with the Lord now, right? So I learned, hey, you lighten up a situation by telling a joke, right? Mm, Not to my wife, you don't. (laughs) Whoa! She, She would... What are you making fun of me? No, I'm not making fun. I'm just trying to lighten up. Don't do that, okay? So you learn your wife, okay? And not just women in general, you know? Like guys go, oh, yeah, women, women, they like flowers, you know? And they like flowers and candy. Yeah, nuts. Your wife's on a diet? And she's allergic to flowers, right? You saw that in the movies, so you're you're going to come in there, right? You know, or the guy gets, oh, I know what I want. Oh, my wife, right? You know, we're talking about this. We can talk about sexuality. So he comes through the door, right, with that look. And what does she do? Back. Why? She's six months pregnant. She's got four little kids. They're all in diapers, and they had number tens. Now, this is just, we used to measure them. Number one's just a little bit. Ten's a total disaster. Can't save the kid, can't save the clothes. Throw them in the tub, okay? So the kids are all sick. They've had number tens all day. The washing machine's broken. The last thing your wife wants is you to have that look in your eye, okay? Go fix the doggone machine. Go cook supper and tell her to get some rest, okay? In fact, I tell guys, one of the best things you can do is give your wife the night off and let her go to sleep, okay? Live according to wisdom, okay? And you got to teach guys that, okay? And guys are kind of little thick. My wife says, don't use it publicly, but I love it. She heard Robin Williams, before he died, and said, men only have two organs, and they don't both work at the same time. You can figure that one out on your own, okay? Uh, bottom line is you have to teach guys to, to love their wives, to, to, to sacrifice, and to try to build her up so that really, literally, uh, you can present her to Christ more godly than when you married her, and not because she suffered through your, you know, your sins. Okay? So, so male headship, it's necessary. Okay, now when you get that kind of leadership, women will want to submit. And I can tell you, it even happens for men with men. You know, you, if you've been in the military, you know, you, you get a good CO, commanding officer, or an XO, people are willing to die for that person. Because, because they know that leader is a real leader, and uh, his life is wrapped up in protecting the troops. 
And of course, 2 Timothy 2.22, which has become one of my life verses, <laughs> the man of God must be gentle. Boy, have I failed. Have I failed in that regard? He must be gentle, able to exhort those who contradict, so perhaps God might grant the gift of repentance unto life. People don't change. They don't change except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're not going to win them by gruffness. Okay, That gentleness needs to be there. So all this stuff is stuff that you need to teach. And that kind of sacrificial gentle but firm this is the way we've got to go I mean you need those guys right for your church how can you run a church without men like that because I'll tell you right now um, it's rough being a leader and most of you know that you'll get blamed for all sorts of stuff people hey go see my husband he's run off with another woman I go see him right say you got to come back he divorces her you broke up my marriage. You get stuff like that. Here, here's what I learned in water safety instruction when I was a kid. Um, never approach a drowning swimmer from the... Why? They'll take you under. Never approach a drowning sinner from the front because they'll take you under. Okay? And so we need to have men that are tough. There's no one, I think, tougher or more tender than Jesus Christ. You going to mess with my father's house? Get out of here. Drives him out. Cleans out the temple. Why is he doing that? Leaven, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. You got to get all the leaven out of the house, right? That's another one the liberals say. Oh, John's all confused, you know. Uh, He has the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus when uh, the synoptics all have him at the end. And I go, you guys are dumb. Never clean your house more than once? Every Jew knows what has to go during the Feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Leaven has to go. That's what he's doing. He's cleaning house. And I think he did it every... I think he did it every year. And that's why at the end they're ready to kill him. You know, because he's, he's, I'm not going to tolerate you making my father's house anything. That's the kind of leaders that we need, okay? And so how do we become that? Well, first of all, we need to take our sins to Jesus. We need to have his love, and he needs to produce that in us. Now, kind of interesting, men, uh, I'm getting weird as I get older, but, you know, uh, think about this. It's hard for men to grasp this, but you and I are the bride of Christ, aren't we? We're the church. We don't think in those terms because we're the men, okay? But we need to to think in those terms. Why? Because you can't produce the fruit of the Spirit on your own. One of the interesting realities in life with, uh, you know, living with lesbians and... and, uh, Gay men, you know, want to have kids, right? They, they want to adopt them and etc. The reality is you still need a sperm and an egg to produce a kid, right? Can I get an amen on that one? I, mean, I don't know of any... And you still only get sperm from men and you only get eggs from women. So there are some realities that don't change even though we want to act like it's different. 
Nobody's been able to clone those things. And so we need to teach men to be men that will take up these tasks. Okay. Well, I'll end here. Any questions before we go? Yeah. Yes. In light of Paul's direction for a woman not to teach, how do you reconcile women teaching seminars in this conference? You'll notice that some women say women only. Okay? Uh, It's not the church per se. You can slice and dice that. My preference is that women don't teach women, uh, other than women, I should say. Um, However, if a woman is teaching, let's say as a medical doctor, if she's not teaching as a teacher of the word, I think that would be appropriate if she had expertise that could be bring to counseling. Uh, uh, My wife teaches uh, in my courses, but what she teaches is her experience in the sense of 10 years of being pro-life. This is what we did as a pro-life center. These are the issues that women face, you know, in that. It's not totally without the scripture, but in a sense, her job is not to, to, to do that. Now, again, you're, you're going to have to ask uh, Craig, just to be honest, and say, hey, Craig, what's your take on this? Uh, why are there women, you know, teaching things that I would consider inappropriate? But that's a legitimate question to ask. But... Yes, ma'am. I think it's it, it's uh, machismo, you know. <clears throat> it's the way the male leadership comes across that is important. If it's a Christ-like leadership, if it's dictatorial, it becomes difficult, and then it's a temptation. Peter knows that interestingly in First Peter too. He says, "Don't give in to anything that is frightening." So Peter knows that it's frightening to submit. To an unjust authority. Right. But it's just like children. Children want parents that really lead them. They're not dictatorial, but they need that. And a woman needs, not because she's less than a man, but because that's the dance that God has put into the world, as he's put it. Blessings. We'll see you uh, this afternoon. Have a good uh, bon appetit. Bon appetit. It's uh, Portuguese. Thank you. Copyright 2016 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.